Sounds of laughter, shades of life, are ringing through my open ears, inciting and inviting me, limitless, undying love, which shines around me like a million suns. It calls me on and on across the universe. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England, Norway, Matt Russell and Chris Carney. Oh yeah, baby, baby. Lennon. Uh, it's episode 202 and this week i have a guest host semi-permanent guest host chris carney hi chris how are you this morning hello i'm very good thank you i'm so excited to be here on this podcast it's one of my favorite podcasts ever so thank you it's so exciting we met i don't know about three or four years ago when we bonded over the fact that we just started our own podcasts and mine didn't last as long as yours <laughs> in some ways i felt sorry for you and got yeah, you on the show I know. you've got a really cool radio program though i do have one uh, radio show left uh which is called losing my edge radio show i, I have it on um melodic distraction uh which is a a, a radio station in uh, in liverpool and uh it broadcasts from there on the the third thursday no not a thursday at all the third sunday of every month at 1 p.m um but i also do these uh like podcast in between uh which is just a music appreciation basically uh so i try and do a weekly one of them as well as the monthly show it's, it's good to be asked to be on, a, on on someone else's i will reciprocate I, i'd love to do them i haven't done a music podcast apart from you know like education ones how is that even possible you are like the music man you come from down our way <laughs> <laughs> now, despite the fact that you're from Liverpool, Chris, yeah. where are you now? I am in, uh, yes, I'm uh, in Norway and uh, I've been out here for nearly five weeks following my uh, my wife like a groupie and uh, because of the pandemic situation, I've uh, obviously had a reduced uh, work capacity. So I've been out here doing loads of things, really hiking, cycling, swimming, drinking, stargazing, it was very nice to be out at the at the family cabin and see a bright uh, sky of stars without much pollution. The likes of Vega. Mm, that was nice. Um, <laughs> but also what was lovely was seeing Saturn, Jupiter and Mars all in the same sky and uh, being able to, to look at them all almost with oh. your same eyes at the same time. But you have to sort of quickly move to the left to see Mars. So, um, but yeah, very beautiful over here. But also uh, saw a, um, a Tesla Model X drink. Is, is, do you say drink if it's Tesla or does it have to be? <laughs> um, but yeah, and it, and it had the registration plate SpaceX. How baller is that? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I had to look inside to see if it was actually Elon Musk, but it was a woman. Um, but, you know, he's got a lot of money, so maybe he sometimes is a woman. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> you know, he's he's got he's got he's got several ex-wives, so you never know. That might be a settlement thing. Exactly. I I, <laughs> oh, I'd love to go to Norway and see and do a bit of stargazing. Do, do you get? Are you far enough to be able to see the Northern Lights? Uh, no, the Aurora Borealis. Yeah, it's a it's a we are, we are just a little bit outside of Oslo, so about thirty kilometers north of Oslo, the cabin. Um, but uh, you you you're seeing. 
their northern lights about another five or six hours drive north before you start seeing them. I've still never seen them. I've been up north four times, um, but it's never been the right conditions, unfortunately. But, you know, Kaya oh. grew up just like using them as her as a compass because uh, it's just uh, you know they were bored of them by that time it's like oh god it's them again um <laughs> bored but, yeah. the northern oh, that's 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 making me sick <laughs> <laughs> no i mean obviously they never get tired of that they're, they're so they're, they're just a, obviously an incredible phenomenon that they that, that that a huge part of the culture up north so yeah um hopefully one of my uh one of my journeys in the future up north are going to be able to get to see them my mother-in-law is from hammerfest which is uh the northernmost city in the world uh where obviously that's just like you know the whole sky is just aurora borealis all the time and polar bears no there's no polar bears they don't have them they have them up in um in a bit higher up though in that island what's that island called oh, I don't geography know, but, major um but do but they yeah. ever come down is there any chance that the polar bears are going to get hungry and start eating the people of northern Norway? I think so. I mean, you know, anything's possible. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, though, uh, like uh, last week's show uh, with your first uh, guest, Julio Aprea, what a guy, absolutely amazing. Um, and, you know, a literal space engineer, beautiful Argentinian accent, works for ESA, and this week he got a Scouse DJ with a drama degree. <laughs> yeah, well, I have gone from two. Julio is talking in his fourth language as well. He comes from Argentina. Oh my God, it just gets better, doesn't it? I mean, works in France, lives in Holland, but was talking to me in English. I, you have to say that that is pretty legendary, isn't it? Makes me sick. Uh, <laughs> it does actually. It's annoying. But that's the that's the, that's the only downside of being English is that you don't bother learning many languages oh my god if at all my um my in-laws just got sick of asking if i'm ever gonna learn <laughs> <laughs> if you do something disappointing do they do they have a sort of conversation in norwegian behind your back in the kitchen you can uh, hear them muttering well they can't do that you see i can understand so i can understand everything that's being said pretty much uh, i just can't converse it's amazing, isn't it? If you think about astronauts that they have to or did have to to learn Russian. Yeah. <laughs> like it's really hard to learn a foreign language, particularly when once you're an adult. Yeah. That's the problem. I reckon if you're training to be an astronaut, there's lots of other things you need to do as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just one one or two little jobs that you might have on your on your list. <laughs> Chores. We're recording this on Thursday, the 10th of September, and it's Mike Mullane who wrote the brilliant book. Of, if, I don't know if you've read it, The Riding Rockets. Riding Rockets. Uh, no, I haven't read that one. It's, it's quite controversial. He, he, likes, he likes to tell all the sort of really juicy, gossipy stories. It's really good. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, okay. Mike Mullane, yeah, he, he was a, a, space, a space shuttle pilot. But also from the from the air force. Is it on Audible? Because I've got my credit today. I get my fresh credit Ooh. today to get a book. So maybe it I would think this. I would think it is on Audible. Yeah, because it's quite a big one. But there's another birthday today uh, on yes. on the time of recording. He's forty nine and never been kissed. He's forty nine and never been kissed. He's forty nine and never been kissed. He's never been kissed on the bum. It's Matthew <laughs> Russell's birthday. Yes, everyone. It's my birthday. And I'm what far have you got too him? old. This goes out on September the 11th. And, and yes. two, two absolute legends are born on September the 11th. Oh, yeah. 
German Titov, who was the fourth person in space, but the second to orbit the Earth, born in 1935 on this day. Wow. Yeah. No Amazing. longer with us, but Titov, proper legend. I mean, that is proper legend. But there's Crippin as well, who was yeah. born a couple of years later. He's still going strong. Yeah. But he was the person that piloted the very first space shuttle. Uh, which I, I reckon was maybe even riskier than Gagarin or Titov's, yeah, you know, yeah. original first couple of flights. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, those guys had to take it up. He had to bring it back. <laughs> the Crippmeister is like, I've got to bring this thing, I've got to bring the sucker back, back down to earth. Do you understand that? There's no, not even parachutes landing in the sea. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just imagine uh, Leslie Nielsen just coming in every now and again saying, just want to say good luck. We're all counting on you. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, he's, I mean, that is particularly, apparently, what a, a favourite fact about that flight is still that John Young sat next to him. Yeah. And, and, and Crippen's heart rate is going off the scale at launch, whereas John Young's is just like remains at 80 or something like that. It's just like completely, yeah, whatever. <laughs> there was absolutely no, there was no shaking no, Young, no, was Yeah, there? just no emotion, no yeah. It's just another launch, what, what, you know, what of it? I've been so, to the moon. I've done it. Yeah, yeah, done all this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Learn Russian. (laughs) Oh no, I don't. I don't. I don't think John Young will have learned Russian. No, they. They did. I can't help feeling they went to the moon. You know, to to stuff it up the Russians. Yeah, it was only completely. That was the whole idea. I mean, you know, you got you've got sort of Kennedy. You know, oh, we're then this decade, and there was wonderful speech and everything. But he's just thinking, I'll show you. I'll show I'll you, Rusky. Show, I'll show you, Rusky, you pesky Ruskies. <laughs> can you say Rusky now? You can't say that anymore, can you? I think you probably, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it was all, it, all those differences with the Apollo-Soyuz missions were all put behind them. And they've yeah. never looked back. The, the, the Russians and the Americans have been super friendly ever since. Oh, yeah, it's been, it's been a real bed of roses. But my favourite birthday of today is Mary Watson Whitney. Yes. An American astronomer who was born 1847. Oof. 22 years the head at the Vassa Observatory in New York. Whoa, that is amazing. Yeah. Well, especially amazing considering when she studied at Harvard, you, you couldn't actually be a woman at Harvard. So she was studying as a guest. Well, it goes on much later, though, doesn't it? This, this oh, sort much, of, much, this, much. Oh, this, yeah, this, much, uh, much. men taking the credit for the for the women's uh, women's work, and there's so but, many women who who deserve this this credit, which just didn't get it, you know. And, no, but, no, yeah. Well, I mean, which, she got. I mean, the funny thing about astronomy is, out of all the sciences, it probably has the best track record. There are so many amazing historical figures. Yeah. Uh, who were women in astronomy? Obviously, it, it it should and could have been a lot more. But do you know? Do you know what? We got to give astronomy some credit in the fact that it it wasn't as bad as others. Yeah. <laughs> and and, yeah. and and people like and people like Mary Whitney were were trailblazers. She was actually the assistant to another legend, mm. uh, Maria Mitchell who was running the observatory before us. So Maria was even more of a trailblazer. Yeah. They had a major position at the Vassar Observatory in New York, 102 scientific papers yeah. on things like variable stars, 
comets, asteroids, those sort of things. Yeah. And it was just when photographic plates were coming in. So that's a lot of measurements and computation was done. So, yeah, the, the, those were exciting times for astronomy as well, the, the, the sort of late 19th century. To, to, to think just literally how how early we're talking here for a woman to be doing that and um, and what she probably would have come up against in terms of uh, in terms of opposition you know the proof is in the legacy oh. and that that's 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 an incredible thing so i hope she i hope i hope the the patriarchy went a little bit easy on her in the uh, in the in the world of astronomy I hope the science world was maybe a little bit more uh, forgiving it's quite hard to put your brain into the mindset of someone from the 1980s let alone the 1880s. Yeah, no. I know. I mean, in, in in Liverpool, we had the shell suits as well, which was even more difficult to uh... exactly. I mean, if you think about Liverpool in the in the 1970s, yeah. while we've been rabbiting on, just yeah. just to keep people interested, I'll, we'll be playing our get my guest interview with Sarah Crudders, who's been on the show before. Sarah is a really really good space writer, space journalist. She's written a new book. Look up. Oh, what, uh, what now? It's actually called oh, Look Up, oh, right. okay. Our Story with the Stars. Yeah, yes, I, it sounds fantastic. I did a little read up on the uh, on this and it just sounds fantastic. I've got an advanced copy and I've been reading it. It's very, very easy to read. It's really, it's one of those books, it's, it's one of those books where you can probably read it very, very quickly because it's so well written. Don't take my word for it. Check this out. Sarah Crotus is a gifted writer and Look Up is an inspired book. And I am hopeful that we'll never stop looking up. Michael, I can't believe I'm on yeah. the same podcast as Michael Collins' voice. As that's, that's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and John Lennon. Well, well, Michael like, Collins. Yeah. yeah. I mean, during the Apollo, the, the Apollo 50 celebrations, I think Michael Collins became my favourite character amongst it all there's something really really cool about michael collins and he's and he's definitely written an even better book than riding rockets mm. uh, the michael collins uh, book is brilliant yeah, do you know me too me too i think michael collins what happened during the 50 was that people really pushed him to the fore um and he started to get a lot more of the credit that he rightly rightly deserved um yeah. and you know I, I i do workshops in schools and often they're they're about space and stuff like that and i always emphasize michael collins um i always emphasize him because he 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 doesn't just represent the, the 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 great astronaut that he was but he represents how the rest of that amazing team are often forgotten about in favor of of neil armstrong and buzz aldrin you know the the hundreds of thousands of people that were involved i think michael collins is almost like where's the badge for those guys because he is literally the number three man who's often was often left out of the out of the equation when people talked about the moon landings uh, and if anything i think he was more important <laughs> you know, it's crazy <laughs> i mean it's an equal team of yeah. course but you know if he wasn't there they could not have done it and that's that's the, the but yeah, um, I I I think through your podcast and through my own sort of reading and uh, I, I, Michael Collins has become my favourite two of the uh, of the of the Apollo missions. Yeah, he's 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 great. He is great. Um, yeah, so Sarah, it's a it's a really good conversation with Sarah, and and honestly, it's a really 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 good 
really, really, really good book about the importance of space. And it's kind of her love story with space, her own kind of personal story, but also the story of all the people that have been involved and why space is important. Yeah. So she talks about all all those people like Titoff and Crippin. I'm not sure they, they get a complete, I'm not sure they get a name mention actually, but she certainly talks about those type of pioneer and, and and how important they are but we kind of did that last week as well with with people like lee solid just all those people involved all those absolute legends who worked really really hard to make all this stuff happen can i just say though lee solid feel- what a name well, what just, a name it's, <laughs> it is it is an incredible name i'm working very hard to try and get lee on the show it's looking good so so like, it'd be amazing that'd be amazing i'd love to know what else is underneath the seat of his truck anyway i've been watching star trek uh, uh, recently because it's all on netflix and 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 i I never really watched anything past the original series and i love the original series so what i did I, i typed in what are the best episodes of all the other stuff and often it's the mirror episodes right so it was funny that you should talk about that you wanted to talk about mirror matter because I said what what do you want to talk about and and we haven't had one of these crazy <laughs> uh, <laughs> physics deep dives for a while so I thought do you know what mirror matter might be quite fun yes and uh, and it was just after I'd watched uh, the original series where they that where the where they Spock has a beard. Oh, it's so good! Oh, but, Spocky uh, beard. I love yeah, the sound of that. That sounds Spock brilliant. Beard. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really, it's really good. Um, <laughs> the other episodes from the other seat from the other seasons weren't so good. But hey, Mirror Matter. Yeah. Well, we let's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do the the, the big deep dive back on episode one eight one. We talked about the kind of why mirror matter has come about but we didn't actually talk about mirror matter in this one this was to do back on 181 there was a really really good um piece of research that had nailed down a little bit closer why there's this misbalance between antimatter and normal matter so there's something not quite right and i think it might have something to do with this symmetry a really famous experiment is uh, by a, a woman called Shan Shong Wu, they noticed that the way that uh, cobalt-60, it, it didn't decay as they thought it would. So they sort of managed to sort of hold it in a magnetic field so they're all pointing in the same direction. But for some reason, the way the ele- as the electrons came, came come out of the uh, nucleus as part of this decay, they're all firing off in, in, a, in a similar direction or a bias to this one direction, which you wouldn't expect. You'd expect... Not the boy bands. You wouldn't expect it to be the boy band. <laughs> it's gone all a bit Harry Styles. No, so the analogy is that that for some reason in the mirror image of the universe, physics happens slightly differently. And this was known as violating P symmetry. So this is parity. So it's like the kind of mirror image of things. It's not quite the mirror image, but it's that sort of thing. Uh, but it, remember, that's all a, an analogy. So since then, they thought, well, here's a, here's a bit of a wheeze. If you make these particles antimatter, then you get your symmetry back. So if you, if you, if those particles that are, that are wrong in the mirror. If you make them antimatter, then they're right. Then the laws of physics are uh, come back to being symmetrical. 
Yes. But the problem was that in 1964, that was also violated. CP symmetry, charge and parity symmetry, was violated by pesky neutral kaons. Oh, and, I hate and, them. And, and the weird thing about that is, yeah, well, it's really bizarre because it's like the universe is almost so perfectly symmetrical, but it's not quite. It's almost like the mystery, but you can you can bring time in now, and so just like you did with um, with <laughs> charge making them antimatters, you can do the same thing with time and um, time reverse them, and you get your symmetry back. So you get this CPT symmetry, and that's not broken yet. So this is this is mind melting stuff, but it is because. The, the 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 sort of symmetry is important, isn't it? And it's because it's just nearly symmetrical. If it was completely skew whiff, then they wouldn't be too bothered. But but physicists are like, well, we you know, it's 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 symmetry seems to be a sounds that seems to be a thing. So we need to find a way to bring that back, and that's why these theories come about. I I guess. It. I, do you know what? I think you're right. I think there's. There's a kind of inbuilt Mary Quando in all in on all these <laughs> physicists, and and they and they they want it they, they they want it to be tidy and and they want it to be beautiful as well. So like the the standard model of physics just doesn't seem very beautiful. It seems almost random. It's just like, but it could be that's the way it is. It there's no sort of underlying principle that it needs to be beautiful or tidy it might be that the but that that particle physics is untidy but it does seem that physicists and mathematicians are obsessed with this kind of trying to make it neat yeah yeah but <laughs> so, also might imagine the mary quando sort of effect with the, the the physicist going hold the particle just hold it and think and does it bring it you hug, joy hug. <laughs> <laughs> well no the standard model doesn't seem to, they they hug the standard model and it doesn't give them joy so I think they want to throw it out, and and but of course they need something to replace it. Now, one way round this breaking of p-symmetry right at the beginning, because four fundamental forces, only the weak force breaks the parity, right? Now, it was actually Song Dao Li and Chen Ning Yang who won the Nobel Prize for this, because it was their idea, but it was actually as we just said, Shan Zhongwu, who run the experiment. But she, for some reason, she wasn't on the list for the Nobel Prize, which, are, which I, I think is a little bit mean. You would have thought that yeah, the, just the, a bit. the experimentist should have, should have got s- some recognition. But, that, but there we go. And let's not talk Lee about the choices Yang. of the Nobel uh, Academy right now. <laughs> no. <let's... laughs> well, if you're, if you're Richard Feynman... You don't give a monkeys about it. The joy, the joy of physics should be just about the finding out. Mm, absolutely. The, really, the Nobel Prize is irrelevant. Uh, I mean, let's face it. How amazing for Lee and Yang and Wu that they discovered this this lack of symmetry in the first place. I mean, that that is pretty mind blowing. Yeah. You can you can you can go home each night and say, I discovered something that furthered human knowledge. That is that is a massive claim. You'd much bigger than a Nobel Prize. Sleep like a baby, wouldn't you? I would sleep like a baby if I'd done that. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, we, we, we've kind of recapped just on the background. But, but the one thing I want to point out is that mirror matter 
is not antimatter. So this mirror matter is something completely different. And it and it's there to try and solve this, to try and make things neat. So to try and make to try and get rid of this um lack of symmetry, parity symmetry, you could invent these that every single particle has an exact mirror particle. And that would get round the problem. And this was first discussed by Kobzarev, L. Oaken, and Abel Marunchuk. Oh, and their paper was called On the Possibility of Observing Mirror Particles, 1966. Whoa. Uh, the Russians, well, Russians were totally into this. So uh, the Oaken, I found, I found an article by Oaken where he writes about... 50 years of mirror particles and it's really good it's a, it's it's on archive but this is what he said he says mirror particles cannot participate in ordinary strong and electromagnetic interactions with ordinary particles the hidden mirror sector must have its own strong and electromagnetic interactions this means that mirror particles and i love this bit like ordinary ones, must form mirror atoms, molecules, under favourable conditions, invisible mirror stars, planets, and even dun, dun, brrr, mirror life. <gasps> Amazing. I know, this is ridiculous. Moreover, this invisible mirror can coexist with our own world in the same place. There was a flurry of activity. I know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm reading out of out of the quote now. So yeah, <laughs> you know, I, so honestly, what's it? Pretty, I closed yeah, my eyes I, there. I closed my eyes, and I, 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 it was like Cobbs that I was in the in the room, genuinely. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so now he he in that paper he talks about seeing a mirror train going across the landscape and realizing that it needs a mirror globe to hold it onto the tracks because it needs it needs mirror gravity to hold the mirror particles onto the mirror track incredible uh, and would would those would those gravi gravitational things interact and at the time they were thinking about this in the 60s but they were unaware of the work of Zwicky who was of course realizing that there must be this thing called dark matter. Now this is where dark matter comes in and mirror mirror matter as well because they might be connected. So the 60s was a bit of a heyday. Then the 70s it went super quiet when they were everyone was getting jiggy with uh, quantum chromodynamics and and the standard model and tau leptons and all those kind of things. Just buzz theories. Just you know all the but I mean to be fair these were all theories that were coming coming not just theories but you know experimental outcomes yeah. that were revealing the particles that are in the standard model so the, you know these uh, these were amazing times for for physics you know this was the glory days in the 80s uh there was a bit of a revival cuz uh the russians were still at it but but sheldon lee glashow and no another nobel prize winning physicist wrote some papers about mirror particles so it, it wasn't taken incredibly unseriously and a guy called b holdham wrote about how the electric charges could work their way into normal life that you might be able to get some tiny ordinary electric charge from mirror particles because they appear to mix 
there's a, there's a kind of mixing between ordinary and mirror photons. So there might be a tiny electric charge. Again, a little bit of hinting at the fact that they, that they might have some interaction with the actual <laughs> universe. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, but in the 90s, you get the heyday of mirror particles. So the, the one person that, that keep, whose name keeps cropping up time and time again is Robert Foote. And he wrote a paper called A Model with Fundamental Improper Space-Time Symmetries with H. Lu and R. Volkas. So Robert Foote's from Australia, and he seems to be a massive advocate of the theory. And he wrote a book called Shadowlands, Quest for Mirror Matter in the Universe. Oof, that sounds amazing. He's he's publishing a lot of papers on it, and he's gone full. He's gone full mirror, hasn't he? Gone. He's gone full mirror. He's Spock with a beard. <laughs> but, Spock uh, with a beard, full mirror, looking in the mirror. He's gone full mirror. <laughs> he, uh, he's <laughs> so. So uh, there's another guy, Zurab Berenjani, and he he also writes probably more seriously uh, considered uh, mirror theories as well. These guys have the most. Uh, these guys have the most symmetrical beards that you'll ever see. I think, <laughs> yeah, Surab. I bet Surab Berejani does <laughs> symmetrical beard. The the um. But we should talk about the bullet cluster uh, quickly okay. because if 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 um these mirror particles are interacting enough with um our universe then they then they, there is a chance that they could be what constitutes dark matter that there might be mirror stars and mirror planets and things like that in the halos of galaxies that are causing this the stars to be moving as fast as they are creating this extra gravity needed to hold the galaxies together without them all flying apart which they would do so you've kind of got a choice it's either modified theory of gravity or there is dark matter. You've got a choice. Now, the bullet cluster kind of pushes it into the there must be dark matter kind of uh, realm because the picture of the, the, picture of the bullet cl cluster clearly shows the dark matter, which you can see because of its gravitational lensing of objects behind, is actually pulled away from the shiny stuff, from things like stars and you know all the actual matter that you can see with your naked eye, yeah. Um, and so we know that they're pulled apart. But if if mirror if dark matter is mirror matter, then mirror stars must be more prominent compared to the mirror gas <laughs> than ordinary stars are compared to ordinary gas. Now, for me, that. That seems improbable if we go, unless there's some underlying law in the mirror particle universe that's different to ours. I mean, why would why would be? that be the? Yeah, <laughs> I just don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but there's all you know. Um, Zurab also suggests that some of these um, gamma ray bursts, which are GRBs, might be um, merging mirror matter stars. Or collapsing mirror matter stars. Good, and that, that's what. So yeah, so there's there's a whole bunch of things um, that mirror matter could be doing. Just as that, because I, 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 when I first started reading, I thought it might be 
Get quantum entanglements, you know, because it's a spooky action at a distance, which coincidentally is the the, the name of the court case with my my, my ex girlfriend. But um, <laughs> but yeah, quantum entanglement. I thought it could be to do with that. You know how it's sort of like you know you can have two particles on the other side of the of the universe, both can move and at exactly the same time and communicate instantaneously. But I don't think it's anything is is to do with that. I don't know, Matt. I I don't no, know. I- I really don't think so. No, I think really all it's saying is maybe you can have matter that a bit like antimatter. Yeah. But it's mirror matter. It's there. It just doesn't interact with us. It's mirror matter for every bit of matter in the universe. Yeah. So every single every single thing that we have in our universe that constitutes matter, you have a mirror a mirror version of it, which means that the mirror universe will be behaving in the same way i.e creating galaxies and creating uh creating stars and planets and humans as it which <laughs> which i think which I, which I, <laughs> which i think is why like uh, we could go i mean there's been some recent recent uh experiments to do to to try and probe uh down into into whether there is this mirror matter and what one of them is run by Leah Bruzard at Oak Ridge and there's another experiment called Murmur and things like that which which are basically you have a nuclear reactor that's spitting out neutrons and some of those neutrons are going to be mirror neutrons therefore will pass straight through the casing the shielding that you've built Whereas the, new, the the normal neutrons won't; they're blocked by the shielding. Otherwise, everyone would die. Um, but the but the but the mirror ones are getting through. But because there's a slight mixing, they can they can you might be able to pick them up as a very very low signal, very small signal, almost buried in the noise, but it will be there. And so they've been running these very sensitive experiments to see if this will happen. Of course, the worst thing about it is the press, because of the way that I've just described this mirror universe where everything exists, but slightly out of phase. It's a bit like all those Star Trek episodes where somehow there's just slightly out of phase. There's a whole bunch of people in 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 the room with you but they're just slightly out of phase with you but this is like they're they're a mirror the mirror is is there but it, it doesn't interact you know but i've been looking for a way to to prove that angels do exist matt and you <laughs> help me with that so oh, thank you see, so much see, i always did believe oh, I, and, and i think this is this is this is my problem with mirror matter this is this is it it's my 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 whole problem with it is yeah that just because it's falsifiable doesn't make it scientific in other words you can't just you can't just come up with a theory of some new particles then give them some properties and then say i'm going to run an experiment and 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 we might find them in this experiment get yeah. money for it and then not find them <laughs> I mean, and 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 the worst thing about this is, obviously, you know, there was reason to believe that the Higgs boson existed, and they built the Large Hadron Collider, and, and hey presto, they fa- found it. But they haven't found any other, you know, proposed particle, and now they're thinking of building a, a larger uh, collider at a, a massive cost to see if they can find these, you know, theorized particles. But often, 
there doesn't seem to be enough kind of reasoning about why these particles would exist other than they might exist. It's yeah. like, like it, it's like dark. Oh, there's dark matter. What can it be? And then just coming up with random, like millions of random guesses. Oh, obviously, to do the random guess, you have to be an amazing physicist. So you have to at least understand the physics and 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 that your 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 new particle that you've invented obviously has to fulfil quite a few. I couldn't come in. It has to work mathematically, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no doubt that these people are clever, but it does seem to be motivated reasoning. It just seems to be a scattergun approach of trying to get to the problem. And maybe this is not the right approach at all. I don't well, know. I it just, appreciate, it seem I appreciate right the scepticism of that, but um, I guess, is there any other way? to do this it's theoretical physics it's a, it, it is sort of the, the 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 creativity of it the imagination of it is maybe what might get us to these points and you know the, 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 there's loads of money out there for this sort of thing you know it, it reminds me of uh, of working in the arts in the lead up to 2008 that was just the same thing you know i think i'd like to be a viking sure Here's a load of money. It was great, um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> if, if, if uh, you know, if 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 there's the funding for it, if there are the people to do I, it, I then... think I think there is lots of funding because obviously people want to get to the bottom of dark matter, and I think that some experiments, if it's only a few million quid, doesn't seems like it's a bargain almost. If it if it sort of reveals that there's if if it reveals that there's how what dark matter is but there isn't really much reason to doubt the standard model it kind of explains everything yeah it's just almost like people are upset that it's not neat yeah <laughs> and, and like a millions of pounds going into it and surely millions of pounds would be better spent on observations and like you know really honing down on the numbers of what of what you know dark matter would look like in terms of there's so much, there just seems to be a lot of observational astronomy that you could do yeah. for the cost of these crazy experiments that are really just testing out highly speculative theories. It's just really like a, 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 a this uh, obsession with symmetry. It's kind of like, you know, spending millions and millions of pounds because a couple of these physicists have a tiny bit of OCD. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was thinking about. It. I mean, if I said to you, "Earth is going to be hit by an asteroid tomorrow," what? It's it's a little bit. <laughs> it's a little bit scientific, because we we know that Earth's been hit by asteroids before, so it has some basis in. Uh, I, I have reason. I have some reason to think it. But if I said we're going to be hit by a elephant, a space elephant tomorrow. Now, I can put together a reasonable, you know, hypothesis that a bit like a Boltzmann brain, just because of some quirk of entropy, an elephant was made in outer space and it's going to hit us tomorrow. Yeah. But let's face it, I don't think it's a particularly scientific thing to say that we're going to be hit by a space elephant tomorrow. It sounds a bit more like uh, closer to Bertrand Russell's teapot, this. But, um, yeah. But with well, the space yeah, elephant, think... I've heard that sequel to Dumbo is actually in the can. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, I quite like my space elephant. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> so, do you want? So now we've learnt about mirror 
matter and and now we've and now I've decided to poo poo it in the same breath. No, there there are there are some good places to look at mirror matter. Wan Peng Tan of Notre Dame University writes a good blog blog about it if you're interested in it. I am. But um so yeah, well, I'm glad you made me look at it because I didn't realize how much it's considered a, a really good candidate for dark matter. But yeah. it's like there are no good candidates for dark matter. <laughs> <laughs> I think <laughs> I'm I, I I this is slightly less crazy than the information is dark matter one yeah. that we did. Uh, but but still Do, I like shall it. We have a, you know what? Well, well I like it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I know, I know you like it, and I, I like it too. I like it too. It's a nice little, it was a nice little ramble on my birthday. I like it. Um, oh yes, I hope you're having an amazing birthday. Ah, uh, it is. Well, how 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 much better can your birthday get talking about mirror matter? I don't. No, I, it I'm isn't. not sure. Well, I it could it could you could listen to Sarah Crudders and Matthew Russell discuss space. Do you mm. want to do you want to have a listen? I would love to hear that. I'm really excited to hear it. Okay, a kootai. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. We're here again. We've got Sarah Crudders back on the show. I don't know how many years later it is. It's three or four. We, I, I, can't, I literally can't remember. But we'll, we'll yeah, sort of I think it's either 2016 or 2017, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, it's a long, well, like we, we were saying earlier, it's a, it's, it seems like a different era. So welcome to the show again, Sarah. How are, you, um, how are you in I, lockdown? I'm good. Welcome through the world of audio to my walk-in wardrobe slash uh, office now, which is the the life of lockdown. But thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, we're very excited to have you back. So the reason why we've got you back on is you have a book, Look Up, that's coming out soon. Uh, first of all, when's it out and what's it all about? Yeah, well, it's, the book's called Look Up, Our Story with the Stars, and it is out this September, and it is... Um, Essentially, the story, you know, as the title says, the story of our, the story with our stars, why human beings went to space and um, the stories of dedication, determination and sacrifice, which, um, you know, the human stories about exploring space, then how space has transformed life on Earth. So the unexpected space age that we live in today through to the entrepreneurial space age. So I work in the commercial space sector as part of what I do and how entrepreneurs changing our future, our, our today and our tomorrow, and then looking um, at the final chapter, which is look back, which is essentially how the greatest thing to come from space is actually us and it, it's Earth and it's this new perspective and how um, we all that is wrong in the world, particularly when you look at climate science right now, how actually going to space gives us hope and the potential to actually solve the very hard challenges that we face at the moment. Yeah, I mean, that, it's a really, really common brick wall that I come up against. And in fact, I had a raging argument with my mum about this very subject right. yesterday. <laughs> a lot of people, when they hear about uh, money going into space, and sometimes it's a, just a ridiculous argument, but when they hear about money going into space, they say, why, when we've got so many problems down here on Earth? How do you address that quickly as a, as a, as a thing? Well, is there's a long answer and a short answer, and I'll give the long answer and I'll try and shorten it, um, depending on how long we've got on this podcast. But the, the long answer is, I get it. Um, so I, in my work as a journalist, I've been to places such as North Korea, the DRC, you know, Goma is one of the worst places I've ever seen in my life. You know, I've been to very horrible parts of the world. And actually, my upbringing, I grew up in the north of England, uh, living on benefits as a child in a single family, a single parent family. I understand that there are big problems in this world. And I think all of us in 2020 understand that. But at the same time, 
Space isn't about, you know, leaving Earth to escape our problems and like ruin another planet. Going into space is actually all about Earth. It's about benefiting life on Earth. So the things we do in space benefit so many people on Earth. Like we live in this um, unexpected space age, one where, you know, we expected jetpacks and flying cars, people who were around in the 60s will remember those I wasn't around but people will remember how you know humans were landing on the moon so we expected this crazy space future and instead we got Deliveroo but actually we all live in a space age in a world transformed for space all of us who have a cell phone a mobile phone have a space receiver in our pocket and if you're going to look at the money side of things for every I think it's something like for every pound you put into space in the UK for example you get 10 pound back but then if we look at the broader perspective, space technology is transforming lives across the world. Take um, Uganda, for example, you know, a, a country, they don't have their own astronauts, um, but people grew up under the stars. Like I've worked in Uganda, people there grew up looking up at the stars and they recognise how space technology benefits them, everything from providing the internet from space to, which essentially, if you look at Africa as a continent, actually, I think the majority of people now have their own mobile phones, but the not everyone has access to the internet. But having access to internet doesn't just mean you can go on Facebook or social media. It means access to an education, access to business, access to opportunity, access to medical training. And um, just to skip to another country, Nigeria, for example, has the one of the worst um, maternal mortality rates in the world. Um, it, like it's staggeringly high, but actually. Being able to access the internet from space instead of having to go through the complexities of putting the infrastructure on the ground, medical teams can receive training. They can receive advice when they're in a serious situation and it can help improve the qualities of life. It can help reduce that mortality rate as one example. So that is a very long answer. But what I'm trying to say is that, you know, we always attack space, but it's what we're doing in space is no different to what we've done on Earth. We, we've explored our planet. You know, governments have gone first, then private industry afterwards. And now the same is happening in space. And it's everything we do in space is about Earth. Yes, we are wanting to push the limits of where we can go and extend the presence of human beings. But we're doing it for the majority. And if we to succeed in space, it has to bring benefit to the majority, which it does. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one thing that I'd... Uh, that it's, uh, by the way, it's a, it's a really, really easy book to read. I think I, I, I really like the, the, the prose and everything. And it's, it's just, it's a very, it's a, it's, you know, it's one of those books that you can just get into and just pretty much rifle all the way through. But I, I know it's very, very human space orientated, isn't it? It's, it's as in, it's, it's about the sort of human story in going into space. But the what? But I, and and I know about space and the technology that we send to space and all the kind of amazing things we do with, uh, in in science in space and and Earth observation and all those things. But for even for me, there's a little bit of a question mark about how much resources we stick into into human space flight going to into space. And 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 a really good example would be uh, India. Has got a fantastic space program, I think, and and it's and it clearly is one of those things that's that's making its economy worthwhile and and bringing back money. But I worry that they're they're sort of starting a human space flight program, and maybe that's sucking up some of the resources that could have been doing all these amazing bits of work that you've just talked about. Have you got a sort of a view, an overall view about alleviating those worries? 
the well, two. We, we need to do both. Um, so I need to, like, the proudest thing I have about this book is that the fact that Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins wrote the foreword. Um, and, and there's actually a story from that that I want to use to explain this. And in his speech uh, to Congress after he'd been to the moon in 1969, I think it was September 1969, um, he talked about all the problems that were faced on Earth. And he talked about his own experience when they were on the way to the moon and the... Um, the Apollo spacecraft was rotating like a chicken on a barbecue spit, he described it at. And at one point they could see the Earth out the window, then they could see the moon, and they had the choice of, of looking either way, the moon, which represented the future and where history would be made in a couple of days, or looking back at Earth, which represented all of human history and, and where they'd come from. And Michael explained that the, the crew looked both ways. So they looked back at Earth with all the problems they faced, but they also looked at the moon, because there were still problems raging on Earth in 1969 when we went to the moon. There were still problems throughout the history of humanity. Yeah. There's never been a time when we haven't had problems, but we have to keep exploring. We have to keep moving forward. So I can under, you know, and Michael explained, they look both ways. And that's what we need to do. We need to address issues on Earth, but we can't stay still. Stasis isn't good for a species. And by progressing forward, it benefits all. And you know, you look at the world 100 years ago compared to the world now and, and we're living, we're all of us are alive in the best time. Like, you know, even though 2020 is a, a terrible year for so many, we're still alive in the best time. We've got the best technology we've ever had as a species, the, the best, most exciting stuff. And so when you look at robotic missions and human missions, nothing can replace humans going into space. The inspiration that comes from seeing human beings push the boundaries. You know, Michael Collins uses this phrase, outward bound, you know, and to push outward bound where we could go. What we're doing in space is nothing new. It's just the playing field has changed. So we've explored Earth. Governments have traditionally gone in first, then private industry afterwards, you know, as we've done on Earth, we're now seeing the same thing in space. And, you know, with this tiny, tiny, tiny planet, so insignificantly tiny, we can't even get our brains around it because it seems so big to us, our Earth. But on the scale of the universe, not even a speck. When you're beyond the solar system, we're not even a speck. So why wouldn't you want to explore? Why wouldn't you want to push those boundaries? And yes, we can send out robots, but to see humans, you know, return to the moon and this time to extend where humans live, not just to go and plant flags, uh, you know, take a few photos and have some footprints on the ground, but actually to to go there, you know, to extend at the moment we live on Earth and then we've got the International Space Station, which obviously 20 years this year since it was... Um, First, first, became, first became permanently crewed. So we're extending where we can go. The next stop is the moon, but this time for a permanent crewed base. And then further, human beings to Mars. And then we're just, we're just dipping our toes in the water. So with all the problems on Earth, and I understand it, we still have to keep exploring. And with that, you get so many other benefits, so many indirect benefits. You get, first of all, you get inspiration. Like the generation inspired by Apollo built the world we live in today. You know, and you can't measure something like that. You know, imagine, take, for example, the Crew Dragon launch, which happened in May and then landed back on Earth in August. Think of the inspiration, someone who's a young kid who sat at home. How would that define their life? And they might not become a, an astronaut or a rocket scientist, but how will that, what will that inspire them to create that we cannot yet imagine? Just like people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk were inspired by the moon landings. And there's just... We have to keep on exploring it. It's in our it's in our DNA, but we have to recognise where we came from and, and realise that if we do so, we can't afford to leave everyone out because today the majority of people who've been to space are white and male. And if we're going to go to space and, and continue expanding where we are because that's in our DNA, it's what makes us human, 
we need to represent everybody on earth because um space has to be about everyone so i i welcome the idea of more countries um having access to space yes there are problems on earth but not going to space is not going to stop that because if, but in going to space and sending humans to space we solve really hard problems and that in turn has benefits for life on earth there's, there's always going to be people who disagree but we have to keep on exploring the world we live in today is thanks to those who push the boundaries of where we could go yeah, I'd, I, there was one interview that I heard with Andrean, Carl Sagan's wife, and it's really stuck with me about this this message of of we need a destination, as in in terms of having a humans having a conversation, mankind, humankind having a conversation about where we want to go as a species, so that we can actually build a roadmap to that. And and ever since I've ever since I've heard that message, I've been thinking maybe that you know as science communicators, maybe that's the bit that sometimes we we miss out because we're so enthusiastic about the subject and the and the and the kind of <laughs> the way that we're moving in the bus or the plane or however we're doing the journey, and we we forget about ultimately what why why is it that we want to explore? Why is it that we want to sort of push out into into the into the cosmos? Because it's what it's what makes us human, it, you know. It, it's the reason that we live in the world we live in today because of our ancestors who explored and pushed the limits. You know, who were curious about what was on the other side of the hill. Who, who, you know, it's that it's it's what makes us human and it's what's created our society today. And actually, um, although I agree with the point about having a roadmap, what I would say is. Space isn't, you know, sometimes the media get confused because they talk about a new space race now, but there isn't mm. because there's no longer, you, you look back to the space race, um, which I talk about in the book, actually, because it's important to always tell that story because everything we do in space is owed to those first pioneers. But if you look back to the space race, there was a very clear goal defined by Kennedy, go to the moon. But what we're seeing today is that there's there's multiple things like you know, the sky is no longer the limit, space is limitless. But I, I agree, we need that kind of like, you know, there's no longer a race to one destination. There's lots of companies and countries both involved in doing lots of different things, everything from potentially mining asteroids in the moon for rocket fuel to sending human beings to Mars to um, moving manufacturing off Earth and using data to benefit Earth. But I think, you know, if we are going to tackle those really hard challenges, we need to have that succinct Kennedy-esque goal, that, that JFK-esque goal, uh, you know, and a clear mission statement. But I, I do wonder whether our Apollo moment, this, um, certainly this half of the century, obviously Artemis, seeing humans return to the moon, seeing the first woman on the moon, and hopefully seeing a time where women no longer have to break barriers for women, but actually for humanity. But I, I would argue that tackling climate change would perhaps be our, our next Apollo-esque moment and using the, you know, we had to go up to understand what was going on on our Earth. It is thanks to space-based satellites and astronauts in space that we know about our Earth's changing climate and we get this, over. you get more and more data so we can make important decisions about how to react to this in the future. So I would argue that one of the biggest goals that we need to look at and perhaps have a, a clearer roadmap is um, how to combat climate change and to have that Apollo-esque mission. But um yeah, it's two parts. In part, I agree with you because I think we have to have defined goals and certainly, but at the other end, it's space is limitless and the, we it's a place where we can dream the impossible and go out and make it happen. And it, we're just such a tiny part of something. And I think with all that's wrong with 2020, space gives us hope because you can just look up at the night sky. That's why I called the book Look Up because it's accessible to everyone. Um, 
and everything you can imagine probably exists out there as well as all the things you can't imagine. And I realise this is a really long-winded answer, but no, I, no, no, know, I, love I both it. agree I love and disagree, <laughs> but I think we just need to have, we need both a defined roadmap, but at the same time to recognise that this is like something we've never seen before, that the possibilities are just limitless to come and we have to appreciate there's no final destination. Like it is, it's just extending where we can be. Sometimes it, it's, it's a frustrating message to get across when you're so enthusiastic about a subject that that you you want to bring everyone along with you but you understand that there's they can understand that there's lots of other problems climate change uh, to bring space into that issue i i think it's quite simple isn't it because we wouldn't really know the things that we do know about climate change without european satellites and and all the all the money that we've spent on space well yeah the satellites across the world and i think that's but I, I would say that most people are interested, most children are interested in space. Most people are like, that's what kind of like sparked my enthusiasm as a child, just looking up at the moon. All of us have that curiosity about space. All of us want meaning in our life. You know, space is as much about philosophy as it is about science, because it's about asking questions about you know, where did we come from? Why do we exist? Are we alone in the universe? The biggest questions. And I think it's easy for people to get sidetracked in their day-to-day -day lives. I mean, I'm as guilty as it as the next person. But actually, I would argue that all of us have it in us. All of us have that curiosity in us still. And, you know, I challenge anyone just to go outside and and look up at the night sky and not be inspired and, and not feel curious. Like you mentioned looking at the comet, that, that's incredible. Do you know, I didn't see the comet. Every time I tried it, it was either cloudy <laughs> or I was back in London and it was full of light pollution. But I, I love seeing the International Space Station. So at the start of lockdown, the the March-April time, the really dark days of lockdown, mm. um, it was a great time to see the International Space Station. And it's like the, the one thing you have in common with every single human being that has ever existed is we've all looked up at the same stars. We, we've all looked up um, and, we, and we've all looked up at the same stars. And the difference is now when we look up at the stars, there's human-made objects there. So we, we see human-made you know, pieces of humanity, which have, you know, figuratively touched the stars that, are, you know, human made stars. So looking at the International Space Station and knowing that there's human beings, like there's three astronauts on board the space station at the moment, looking back at us. And that's an incredible, humbling kind of, and what I love about seeing the ISS is you can also watch in real time what they're looking back at. So you can see their view of Earth as you're looking <laughs> up at them, which is just mind blowing. Yeah, that that is mind blowing. Yeah, one, one of my favourite moments was during the centenary of uh, of the end of the First World War. They were projecting images on the on the big building in Ilfracombe, lots of pictures of the trenches and stuff like that. And the ISS flew over as I was watching. I was thinking, that's incredible. There's a, a Russian, an American, a German, uh, uh, well, a couple of Russians, an American and a German on board. And I was thinking, that really should be an amazing moment where, where it's not, not only are we out in space, but we're out in space in perhaps the most incredible international collaboration that shows what you can do if you put aside all your differences. Well, this is one of, the, one of the things I love about the International Space Station. So I, um, and I don't claim to be the person who first said this, but I'm, I've always said that the International Space Station is um, worthy of a Nobel Peace Prize because you've got countries, I think it was Jan Werner I got this from. So Jan Werner, who's the um, Director General of the European Space Agency, when I worked with him at a few events. But the, the ISS is worthy of a Nobel Peace Prize because you've got countries which um, might not necessarily get on on Earth, you know, historically haven't got on, but working together in space because actually 
what we do in space is greater than any one country, any one individual. It's the the most arduous, complex challenge we've ever faced because human beings aren't designed to go to space, yet we're so curious we want to go there. Um, so space, and, and I think it's interesting actually, because this year the International Space Station has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize after quite a few years of saying it now. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm not naive enough to say that it's completely hmm. harmonious in space, but... Yeah, we we have got a huge amount of collaboration, and you think uh, you look back to the Apollo Soyuz in 1975, which you saw that handshake in space between two rival superpowers, and and how they they could collaborate off Earth, um, and and we're seeing it today. You know, for all that's wrong in the world, we we collaborate in space and we work together, and I think that that it gives me hope that. Um, Although humanity is not perfect, when we really face these really difficult challenges, almost kind of like what we're going through with COVID night right now, the, the challenges and the collaboration that we're seeing with that. But when we face these these great challenges, we, we work together. And it gives me hope because when we're in space, of course, astronauts, cosmonauts, taikonauts, whatever you want to say, they all wear their country's national flags, but they all call the same planet home. They all call Earth home. And when and it, I talk about this in the last chapter of my book, actually, because when astronauts return from space, it doesn't matter where they land. So they might land in Kazakhstan, but they're Americans. They still say welcome home and they're still welcome home because in space, Earth is our home. Like you mm. you go back, you know, you're in Earth orbit, 250 miles up on the ISS. You can't see the borders. You know, you can make out some countries, but you can't see the borders that divide us. Go to the moon, quarter of a million miles. You know, we're just one planet is home, one planet which you can cover with your thumb. So it's yeah, I think space has the potential to to unify us in in ways and a realization that we are all in this together, that we are divided on Earth, but actually in this vast impossible universe, we all call the same planet home. And if we don't look after it, we're going to be facing many, many more challenges. And in order to look after it, we need to work together. Yeah, I mean, do you think that that's why uh, the stories of astronauts become? more important in some way because they've actually lived through that collaboration because I, I, I noticed when I when you talk to people like Mike Fole he actually the, the thing he says is things like he misses his Russian uh, comrades on the on the on Mir that that was the one thing that he misses the most is is the is is his friends so that that sort of make that they all sort of have this international community in space and and their story is one of that overview effect yeah, yeah, I agree. And oh, Mike Cole, wow, with that fire on Mir as well. I mean, he's, yeah, he's, I he's, a, he's a British. He was born in Lincolnshire. He's a, he's a British person who moved to America to follow his dreams of space. Um, you know, so there's already some like international yeah. you know, isms. Is that a word? Um, <laughs> but no, I, 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 I agree. I agree. I think um, space is just it, it gives us a realisation that we're all in together. And actually, you touched on an important point about learning from the stories of astronauts. Um, I talk a lot about um, one of the chapters in my book, Dedication, Determination and Sacrifice, talks about the astronauts. Um, I pick out a few different people, one of them being Gus Grissom, um, another Krista McAuliffe, um, uh, who was a teacher who was obviously sadly killed on the Challenger disaster. But I I grew up in the outskirts of Hull. Um, didn't have very much money. First in my family to ever go to university. No influence of science, but actually learning about the stories of astronauts as a kid and what you can achieve with hard work, determination, and and how you shouldn't let where you come from actually inspired me in my own career and it inspired me to work hard and to realise that nothing's impossible. You know, I, I read about human beings walking on the moon and and I think 
you know, a lot of people talk about inspiring kids with space, but we need to inspire adults as well because all of us uh, have complex lives, don't we? And, and I think learning about the stories of astronauts, what they've overcome and, and why they've dedicated themselves to something so removed, I guess, from day-to-day yeah. life, you know, such as going to space and why they've, you know, or anyone within the space industry, it's not a nine-to-five job. And I think learning about the adversity that people have faced, how they've overcome it and how you can achieve impossible things can inspire a lot of people, no matter what age they are in life or what stage they are in life, because space is more, you know, it's going into space is a lot of things, but it is also a human story. Uh, And that's a a very important story which can inspire you, whether you want to become a scientist or not. I think it can just inspire you in your own life because we are all human at the end of the day. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think that, I think that point probably answers my my really earlier point about about <laughs> I just about, like going uh, about, on tangents. <laughs> yeah, no, well, no, I answered that really earlier point about the about why we should be spe- sending you know really concentrating on the human element of space, and, and I, I really get it in terms of that is the thing that that is inspirational, but but it also kind of plants it in the human experience doesn't it i mean when we talk about voyager and when we talk about cassini they're bits of metal out in space and i wonder how you can it's very hard isn't it to connect to it and i know people like the european space agency have made their satellites more sort of accessible by giving them faces and characters when they do those makes a big difference doing that yeah no absolutely absolutely and then having their like rosetta and philo that was the best example right Um, and I think we we need to talk more about how we communicate space um, because, yeah, there is we can do all these great things, but if we don't tell people about it, um, people aren't going to understand why it matters to them. And actually, turning um, Philae and Rosetta, which were these two spacecraft who went to the the comet Juramajeresmenko, I've had to say that quite a few times. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, they um, they they humanise something, um, and it. But also, it's important to remember that. You know, we've sent robots beyond our solar system now, if you look at the Voyagers, but, like, we... Nothing can replace human boots on the ground. You know, if we're looking to go to Mars within the next 20 or 30 years, perhaps even sooner... The reason, one of the reasons we want to go to Mars is because we want to look for um, that clinching piece of evidence to find out whether life once existed or perhaps even microbial life existed on, it still exists on Mars today. Something which is game-changing. It will be the most profound discovery of all of humanity to either prove that we're not alone in the universe, to get that, because, you know, as Carl Sagan once said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and we haven't quite got it yet, or even though it's highly likely that there might have been life on Mars in the past or might still be life, but also, you know, we can't, robots can't do that. Robot, you know, so that's a discovery which changes all of humanity, but robots can't replace a person being there and having their dexterity, their, 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 their ability to look out and see that rock and their training. You know, robots are acting as a delay when communicating with a robot. And if we want to do that, we want to prove that we're not alone in the universe or that we're, in fact, related to life on Mars, which could be the case. Yeah. Also, we, you know, life on Earth could have been seeded by life on Mars. We need to, during the early solar system, we need humans there to get that last bit of evidence. And also, then we'd be, even if we don't find evidence of life on Mars, then we're a two planetary species and we're no longer bound to one Earth. We finally, you know, just as 
early explorers, like the prologue of my book, talks about how, you know, early explorers cast off from the sea, key, seaside, seaside, quayside even. <laughs> it's, it's the morning. It's Thursday. Um, you know, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're casting off into the ocean that is the cosmos. And we have to do it. We, you know, even if we don't find evidence of life on Mars, there's still plenty of other places where, the, you know, even within our own solar system where life could still exist right now. But it means we've stepped away. We, we've cast off from that cosmic quayside into the cosmic ocean and now we're now sailing in a new sea. And, and it's our gift to the future to keep on exploring. It's our gift to future generations to keep pushing forward, to keep um, extending where humans can be and, and to keep exploring. Like, life gets better when we explore and when we push the, you know, push the limits of what humans can do. Yeah, and just I, I, why wouldn't yeah, you want to do it? Yeah, no, I, I, no, exactly. I, I, I love the idea of yeah, we we deserve, you know, the future generations, you know, deserve that we push forward. But I also love that idea that all the people that went before us, all all the people that all those hard won bits of physics, the fact that people fought in the Second World War, the fact that Gus Grissom died, and you've got all these people that are just. It, you you owe it to them as well. The sort of the the human project that is behind us. And for the hu- a human project that's in front of us, we, we can't be the generation that let everyone down. Yeah, exactly. And I'd like to touch on Gus Grissom, actually, because he was, um, I remember reading about Gus Grissom as a, as a kid, and he was kind of like this, um, grew up very poor um, in Illinois, um, didn't look like your typical hero, worked flipping burgers 30 hours a week while studying at college to eventually go and um, fly in the Air Force, um, ended up, it obviously had a Mercury flight, it commanded the first Gemini flight as well, um, was meant to have command of Apollo 1. Uh, and, you know, there was talk, obviously, and it depends how much people know about this era of space exploration, but Deke Slayton, in one of the original Mercury 7, he was meant to um, go to space, obviously didn't, so he headed up the astronaut office and he was in charge of crew rotations. And there was an element of, it wasn't an exact science how these crew rotations worked out. And there are Rumours that he wanted a Mercury 7 astronaut to be the first on the moon, and that person was Gus. And, of course, Gus died in the Apollo 1 fire um, on the ground in what was at the time seen as a routine test. And he never got to walk on the moon, and, and, and not many people know about him. You could argue that he failed. You know, he failed in this dream for the moon, but actually he didn't fail because his death, although tragic, enabled America's you know, in humanity's greatest success in space exploration, we were only able to go to the moon because of the success, the, the sacrifices of Gus Grissom and his crewmates Ed White and Roger Chaffee. It was because of them that no American was lost in space during Apollo. So it was the lessons learned. And so we, we, we hear about the heroes in space exploration. We hear about Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, for example. We hear about the real success stories but behind them are people who gave their lives for this, people who paid the ultimate price because what they were chasing, what we're doing in space is worth the sacrifice. And, and even, you know, so that's why I think it's important to tell the stories of people like Gus Grissom because to remember why people gave so much for this. And of course it was a Cold War during then, but then you have more modern stories as well, like space is dangerous. I think mm. with um, Crew Dragon right now and with the commercial crew programs so that also includes Boeing and the, the Boeing Starliner, I think it's a, a 1 in 272 fatality rate is what they kind of aimed for. Um, 
but still, like that's that's not great odds. <laughs> like no, it's, it's still dangerous. No, like, we, we 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 take space for granted because we see it on the news now, and it's you know we know that people have been to the moon but actually it's still so risky people are risking their lives because they're pursuing something greater than themselves and even the people who are on the ground are dedicating their lives to something greater than themselves so i think it's important no matter what we do to remember those who came before us so I, and that's i guess why having michael collins write the forward just because nothing we do in space would be possible without the likes of michael like they they gave up, they went places no human being had. They literally yeah. went to the moon, like, in yeah, 19... Yeah, no, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> you know, you say it, like... It's, it's like, like, what? Um, he went to the moon? You know, we are, we live in a time... I, you know, I learned about the moon in history books. More people are... There are, you know, the people who actually remember Apollo are getting fewer and fewer and fewer, but to push that limit, you know, to take humans beyond Earth, to go into space for the first time, to go to the moon, that's, we need, everything we do is owed to those those first few. And of course, it was a conflict that enabled that. But what came from it was the modern world we live in today and all the benefits. You know, you want to get a car to go somewhere, you use your space receiver in your pocket, which is your cell phone, to call that car. But, you, you know, that car is using satellites to find your location. Um, yeah, so it's, everything we do and everything we benefit from today is owed to those first pioneers. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, it plays into that future as well. We, it, George, my son, came up with a brilliant one yesterday about, yeah, if someone dies, like Gus Grissom's death enabled people to get to the moon. But if we get to Mars, Gus Grissom's death enabled humans to get to the moon and to Mars. Mm. His sacrifice becomes more meaningful. Yeah, um, it just, yeah, everything we do... In, in space is owed to those who first took those risks. Yeah. But we're, you know, each voyage we're doing is getting more daring. I can understand the frustration, like um, people who are like, why haven't we been back to the moon? All we do is live in Earth orbit. But we live in Earth orbit. You know, before Apollo was just a, just over a week. That was it. You know, the longest we were on the moon, Apollo 17, was something like 72 hours. You know, we had three days living on the moon. That was it. And then we haven't been back since December 1972. But for the last 20 years, we've had humans living in space, you know, permanently. Like, we've had a continuous roster of crews living in space permanently. We've learned, we've had humans spend a year in space, a year of their lives. I like to call it 2020 because it feels like we're all in our spaceships whilst in isolation right now. Yeah. Um, but in all, in all seriousness, we've had human beings living in space, learning how to overcome those hurdles. Um, and actually, you mentioned the benefit of space for life on Earth. And one point I haven't touched on is things like, you know, some of the science we're doing in space is about the human body because you take away gravity, you're taking away variables so you can study things in a different way. Um, well, for all intents and purposes, you take away gravity because, of course, there's still gravity in space, but I'm, I'm sure you know what you mean. Yeah. But in that, that <laughs> yeah. microgravity environment, like, we can study uh, cancer cells uh, and they, they behave differently in space. They behave more like how they would in the human body and actually... Another kind of story of sacrifice is the, the crew of Columbia, which was lost in 2003 when they returned to Earth. And some of the work they were doing on that space shuttle mission, so for those who don't know, this was a mission in 2003, which 
launch, but during launch, there was some damage to the the heat tiles on the leading edge of one of the orbiter's wings. And as it returned to Earth, it disintegrated over Texas and Arkansas and Louisiana because you'd lost some of the heat protection and all the crew died. It was a, a tragic story um, and testament to the, the sacrifice and the risks that astronauts are prepared to take. But part of the work they were doing was into cells, cancer cells, in this unique environment of space, which has huge benefit for cancer research on Earth, because you can test drugs in space in a way that more accurately represents the human body than on Earth. So we're doing this hugely important work. And they, that research was thought to have been lost alongside the crew when it Columbia tragically disintegrated. But actually, a box with many of the experiments in was recovered, and scientists were able to continue the work that the crew were doing. So work into cancer, which is something which affects all of us at some point in our life in terms of either knowing someone or, or getting it ourselves, is, is being benefited by space exploration. And people have literally paid the ultimate price to continue that research. And I think it's in, in, important to remember that. I, I, I can't remember what question we started with. No, also. I can't. <laughs> no, well, I, well, I've got a new question for you. When you, research, when you were researching your book, what did you uncover a piece of a piece of information or or a story that that blew your mind what was the sort of what was the highlight of your digging do you know it's something because this book is kind of like I was literally allowed to write what I wanted I am so grateful to HQ um Kate Fox who was my editor at HQ because she just kind of like believed in me and I had this crazy idea which was just like all my love of space so like why I love space how we've got to now what's happening now, where we're heading in our future and the human story. So it's kind of like a, mi- a mishmash almost this book, but it's it's my passion. But So a lot of it was stuff which has defined my life or the commercial space sector that I work in. But for me, actually, it goes back to this chapter, Dedication, Determination and Sacrifice, which is more of the, the human chapter. Um, actually, I'm going to tell two stories. But the first one is about this one. And I um, I wanted to write about an astronaut called Judy Resnick, who was killed in the Challenger. Um, um, but I couldn't quite get the story to match. And I, I've written about Judy before. So then I started investigating some of the other Challenger astronauts. And a lot was written about Krista McAuliffe. So she was the the teacher in space. And I thought that's quite a cliche story. People have heard of her. Um, so she was the first teacher in space who was tragically killed aboard the Challenger. But then when I, I started looking up and, and really diving deep into her story... I realised she was an extraordinary, extraordinary human being and, and more people needed to... All of them who who lost their lives in the Challenger were extraordinary. But Christy, you just hear about because she was a teacher, but you don't hear about everything else about her. And it was only when I kind of, like, dug deep watching, like, hours and hours of interview footage of, interview footage of Krista that, you know, she was... She she described herself as an ordinary person and in her lessons in school, so she was a historian and a social studies teacher, and in her lessons in school, before she became this woman who was going to become like a, a space flight participant, so to speak, she was never actually an astronaut, she was a space flight participant as the first teacher mm-hmm. in space, she used to talk about the common man, as, as she described it, and how um, throughout history it's easy to... Um, record military history or economic history or of great leaders but actually the common man gets forgotten throughout history because for a long time now it's different we have social media but for a long time there were no records so she used to encourage um her students to go out and and do oral history projects to go and interview people within their community and her whole aim of 
taking part in this this teacher in space program was to show that the ordinary person was contributing to history. And I think that's a really important message to have because her aim was to, in an era long before social media, to write the first diary from space of an ordinary person's perspective, of a teacher's perspective of what it was like to go to space. And she wanted to show her students that the ordinary person counts, the little person counts. It's not just the great military general or the uh, a great leader, but the little person counts all of us count and all of our contributions count. And, and that was her kind of like inspiration between uh, behind applying to be a teacher in space and getting selected for this programme. And, you know, her death and the Challenger tragedy was horrific, but there are Challenger centres around the world now today. Her, you know, she has had a huge impact, myself included. Like, I don't remember Challenger. I was one years old, but I was... You know, I attended a Challenger Centre as a child. I, I was inspired by learning about her story. And it was only when I, I delved deep, I was just so in awe. And, and it really got me thinking because we all, in an era where everyone's striving to be, or many people are striving to be famous, social media celebrities or reality TV stars, actually, you, you don't need to be that. You just need to be yourself and that the little person counts and, and you can be that ordinary person and, and you the things you do in your day-to-day life are changing history. And I'm not telling everyone to go out and be an astronaut, but I think Krista was just this ordinary person who um, did an extraordinary thing. And I, I think we can all learn from that and, and to do extraordinary things in our life. And then the second story, very quickly, is um, about the Voyagers, the two twin spacecraft which were launched in, 1970, in the 1970s. And what I... I had to double check this because I didn't realise it was true. But when we're gone and when our sun's gone and our Earth's gone, so millions of years from now, those voyages will likely still exist. So two pieces of humanity will be out there in somewhere in the cosmos, even if we don't ever explore space again, even if we cease to do that. There's two relics of humanity that will outlive our solar system. And that's just an incredible fact. I yeah. like to talk a lot about space. <laughs> no, no, that that is awesome. Yeah, do, do you know what? I never even thought about that, but that, yeah, because I, I know it's going to take them a very long time to even go anywhere near our nearest star. <laughs> I know that's always depressing, a depressing fact, but that's a good fact. I like I like the Voyager fact. That's, that's I mean, back to Krista McAuliffe. I mean, I, I was a young I was a young child inspired by Krista McAuliffe. I, I remember it very very well. I used to watch the Challenger. Uh, take off and obviously that was tragic I, I remember it very 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 well as a, as a child but I've noticed actually a lot and, and you'll know this better than than me the the sort of current batch of NASA astronauts are they, is it 12 women uh, virtually everyone I've ever read about always cite Krista McAuliffe as being the influence that sort yeah, of ma- got, that got them into space like, flies the, this batch of astronauts now are probably At that age 40 ish yeah. early 40s so they, they would have um, remembered the challenger like because they'd have been about seven years old or so yeah. eight years old like. yeah so i think and and, and it's, it's obviously it might be one of those women that are the first people back on the moon so it's yeah. like chris mccauliffe's you, again yeah, I, I didn't mean for this to be a morbid conversation talking about the people we've lost and yeah. i don't mean it but i think it's like you don't realise the impact you can have on life, like if, just by trying to do something, I guess, just by, you know, not succeeding in your dream still inspires others. Like, and, mm. and what I love about, so I'm split, I'm half in the TV industry in the US, but I'm also half within the space industry. And like, what I love about space is the the collaboration that you see, the um, 
you know, I, I have so many friends within the space industry because we're all working towards this this common goal. And it's like, you know, most of us will fail, like most of what we do in space will mm. fail, but it inspires the successes. And also failure is not a bad thing, it, you know. And I just, there's so many great stories of, of humans pushing the limits of what is possible, but also ordinary people just trying to do a thing which was impossible to them. Like, you know, space shows us that there's no limits and, and that you can achieve so much like and you know I, I do work with the astronaut memorial well, I've, I've done some work with the astronaut memorial foundation in the u.s and and i talk about this in the book what gets me is like you walk into this office and you see there's like a wall of photographs and they represent every single person we've lost in pursuing space and what's it's kind of like it almost stops you in the tracks because as a kid they were adults but now they're not that much older than me like mm. <laughs> um uh, you know, and I've been lucky enough to age, I guess. And I guess as we continue to push forward in space, the number of names, the number of faces is going to grow, but so is the value of what we're chasing. And, and you know, you're all going to die at the end of the day, but, like, it's how you live your life which matters and what you're working towards that matters. Well, we're, we're staying on the morbid thing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, the book's we, got we, lots of positive uh, stories yeah, in it as well. I, well we're just yeah. focusing on one chapter. <laughs> well, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I like to see them as positive stories. But the the we always ask this of, of guests is um, if you were to bring back someone like a past hero so that they could see where we are now in terms of his here's the story now, what do you think? Who would you bring back from the dead as a as a, as a either a science hero, a space hero, or or anything? You can bring back anyone. Oh, that's such a, a difficult question because like there's people such as Werner von Braun, but then I wouldn't want to bring him back now because uh, Werner von Braun kind of like was the the brains behind getting humans to the moon in the US. But like we haven't been to Mars, so I wouldn't want to bring him back yet because I, I wouldn't. I think he'd be upset, to, very upset to know that we haven't been to <laughs> yeah. Mars yet because he had plans for that in the 1970s. And then, you know, obviously people like Gus Grissom, Christopher McAuliffe, it would be great to show them, you know, Gus, that we did get to the moon sort of thing. Um, so perhaps Gus Grissom would be mine to say, you know, to show, you know, because his is such a almost like unheard of story because he, he had a hard time in the press after his first Mercury mission because the um, the door blew open. He was blamed by the, some in the media for flipping the chicken switch, even though he didn't. He's had some vindication with that since. Um but I, th- I think he would be he would be one of them. But I think also at the same time, would you not want to go further back in history? Would you not want to go um, to someone like, let me think, give me a second to think. Uh, Copernicus, for example, like he, he first said, like the 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 earth is at the centre of the solar system or um, Jules Verne, who wrote stories about humans being to the moon. Like I write about this in the book as well. There's a lot in the book. I don't know how I've managed to fit it all in, but like Jules Verne, who more than nearly, I think a hundred years before humans actually went to the moon, don't quote me on that exact number, wrote about um, a voyage to the moon, which took off from Florida and splashed down in the Pacific mm. Ocean. He dreamed this impossible dream. Isn't it with three people as yeah, well? Yeah, with three yeah, people. Yeah, this is crazy. And, and it's crazy. he <laughs> predicted the moon landings in the, in the 1800s. He was talking yeah. about this voyage to the moon. So just to, you know, and that, it, that book inspired La Voyage Down the Loon, which was obviously one of our first movies, which showed the, the very iconic image of the... Um, the rocket going into the moon's art, um, <laughs> which, you know, bring someone like, bring an artist back because space isn't just about science. So bring, I would bring Jules Verne back and show him these, 
because we need dreamers and what we do in space is beyond just um the scientists and the engineers we need the obviously we need those are very essential but we need people from all kinds of backgrounds so bring bring Jules Byrne back and show him one of his dreams came true one of the stories that he told is no longer science fiction it's become science prediction amazing yeah that's a good one Jules Verne yeah that that it's extraordinary. It takes off from Florida and I know. It's just so, this so is what I, I love about space. It's all the things you can imagine can come true and all the things you cannot imagine. Like there, there's a planet yeah. out there made of diamonds. If you want a planet chocolate, <laughs> technically it could exist. Like it's, it's beyond yeah. the realms of the imagination. So, yeah, bring back a great dreamer and, and show him and then maybe he could dream up the next 100 years, 200 years for us. And, and our final question is, do you have any space music? When I got the email about this, I was like, oh, I'm not, because I'm not massively into my music. I kind of like, oh, listen, I get into some songs. <laughs> I know, I know you're going to kill me. Um, <laughs> but like, I just kind of listen to what's on the radio and I have like a song which I really like and then I'll listen to it on repeat for like a week and then I'll be sick of that song. <laughs> um, Tim Peake had... Don't stop me now. I think, or something That's like that. That's not a space so, uh, song, though. I would, <laughs> well, see, well, it's got it has got it has got some space lyrics in there. I kind of like. Um, was it the oh, is it Coldplay? The the uh, sky full of stars. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's kind Coldplay, of like yeah. you're like you're not a Coldplay fan. I can see them. <laughs> no, <laughs> I no. I do you know what? Do you know what? I, I I am a Coldplay fan. I've got lots of friends who work for Coldplay, so I can't <laughs> possibly say that I'm not. <laughs> no, but no, no, they are. I know. I, I've got a lot. I've got a lot of time for them. Got a lot, a lot, lot of time. It's a good choice. It's a good choice. Yeah, let's go with that because otherwise my only other one is like Space Cowboy. This is literally off the top of my head. So <laughs> after we've stopped recording, I'll instantly come up with a much better go, idea. Oh my but God, Space well, Cowboy is probably me. my second choice. <laughs> Jamiroquai Space Cowboy. So oh, I would yes. say Coldplay um, Sky Full of Stars. <laughs> okay, yeah, I don't I don't think we've got that one on, but oh. <laughs> I think we I think I, I think we have got Jamiroquai Space Cowboy. Okay, bizarrely. well there we go. I'm but, yeah. sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> But we'll put we'll put Coldplay on. No, that, that's 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 totally okay. fine with me. <laughs> Is that so? Yeah. So you, I, I have to say, I, I think just from the way that you're talking now, it, it, it's everything that this book is. It's your sort of super enthusiasm for for space itself condensed into a into a very very readable book. Is there anything you want to add or or or, or say when when it's what, what date it's exactly out? Yeah, so you know. it's out in the UK on September 17th. It's Look Up Our Story with the Stars. It's published with HQ, which is the branch of Harper Collins. Um it's got forward by Michael Collins. And I I would like I know I've mentioned this and I don't mean it to sound like a brag, but it is the the greatest professional honor of my life like to have Michael Collins write that forward. Like as I mentioned, I, I just come from this very humble, not very wealthy, not very privileged background. And to realise that if I could go back 20 years and tell me in 19, maybe, maybe 15 years, like, and tell myself, like, that someone I learned about, someone who inspired me to do everything I've done in my life, in terms of what I do, like, wrote a forward for my book, I wouldn't have believed it. And I just think, that's what space teaches us, that, that you can dream the impossible and go out and make it happen. And I just wanted to express my gratitude to Michael Collins because, you know, I appreciate I'm the author about this book, but the book's, there's an element of me in it in the introduction and, and obviously my enthusiasm, but it's, we owe everything to people like Michael Collins. So it is the greatest honour of my professional life. Like, I feel quite emotional about it, to be honest with you, but it is yeah. to to obviously have that stamp of approval from him, but to to be able to showcase his words, you know, 
Um, Charles Lindbergh wrote the forward for Michael Collins's book, and now Michael Collins has written the forward for my book. This is a heavy, a heavy burden. Like, that, that's a good lineage. <laughs> like, who am I going to write the forward for? Like, I, I don't want to ruin this lineage. You could, well, like, you could write it for my book. Yeah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> like, yes. But um, it just. In Michael's 89 years old, and, and we need to never forget people like Michael and what they've done for humanity, because in a world obsessed with the Kardashians and Instagrammers and, and celebrities and selfieing, what really matters is those who don't seek the limelight, but are those who try and progress, we do things to progress humanity in a thousand years from time, from now, you're not going to remember so, and I don't mean to pick on anyone. People have got to earn a living, and I, I agree. But you've got to remember Apollo Eleven. It was the greatest thing that humanity achieved in the last century, and it, it took us to another world. It took us to the moon. A thousand years from now, this is what this cent- last century will be remembered for. So, it is the the great. I, I am so grateful and so thankful to Michael um, for taking the time to do this because it is a huge honor, and I just. I just want to inspire everyone from as many different backgrounds that space relates to you. All you need to do is is look up. You don't need you don't need wealth. You don't need connections. You just need to look up and feel inspired. And hopefully, it can inspire you to do something in your life. You know, to to follow your own moonshot. Yeah, space is just super <laughs> inspiration. You've been very inspirational as well, Sarah. Thank thank you very much for for coming back on. Thank it's been you for too, having me. I appreciate it. It's been too it. long. It's been too long. It has. I've been in America. <laughs> the Interplanetary Podcast is alive! There we go. There, there was uh, the wonderful and lovely Sarah Crudders. I really, I, it, was, it was lovely. We did it over Zoom and it was nice to see Sarah again after such a long hiatus. And what wonderful dulcet tones she had. We better wrap this up because it's going to get very long otherwise. Okie doke. Chris, do you know what uh, the website is for the yes, Interplanetary Podcast? I do indeed. The website that you need to go to if you want to hear more about this is interplanetary.org.uk. I, I'm going to get you back next week as well because yes. uh, I have the genius Eric Berger on a nice ramble about Ooh. space and rocketry and stuff. Oh. So uh, we, we'll <laughs> normal normal service shall be resumed. Oh, brilliant! That's unless there's a tirade on social media to have me removed. <laughs> unless there is a tirade on social media to have you removed, and um, of course, I wonder if there is a mirror, Elon Musk. Oh That's my one to goodness! Think I think I saw him. He was in a Tesla X over in Norway. <laughs> if Elon Musk had a goatee beard. Oh my god. Symmetry. I think I might that might be the cover of this week's podcast, a picture of Elon Musk with a goatee beard and <laughs> mirror man. <laughs> yeah, the mirror the version mirror of Elon you. Musk is is a goat <laughs> with an Elon Musk beard. Uh, do you know what? I, the, the, the thing that annoys me about mirror matter is is the way that the science press deal with it. It's it's so over the top. Like literally things like uh, scientists are about to to make a tunnel through to a mirror universe and stuff like that. <laughs> Is it any, like, any no, wonder that there's a there's a, a bunch of science skeptics out there because they've been reading all that going that's not possible. But all the scientists oh, are know, going, we know. <laughs> I, I know, but that's the annoying thing. Is I I, I genuinely think now, the more I've been doing this podcast, the more I've realised. That yeah, the the science press, even the good science press like New Scientist, 
really over egg science stories and and no wonder everyone gets bored and fed up with them yeah yeah i mean the elephant and space one was ridiculous i know that what kind of idiot would come up with that i've, I've no idea a dumbo that's all i can say <laughs> <laughs> so so um so, Chris, what are you doing this weekend? Anything exciting? This weekend? Stargazing? Uh, well, yeah, a bit of stargazing, maybe. Uh, we're going to spend some time in Oslo before we head back to the UK for a couple of weeks. So, yeah, spend some time with some friends in beautiful, beautiful Oslo. So, very much looking forward to that. In fact, I'm heading off roundabout now. Excellent. Well, Fantastic. How about uh, you? What are your birthday? Have you got any super, super birthday plans apart from staff induction? I know well, that's a, like the a, highlight. But yeah, it's a beautiful sunny day today, so I might, uh, I might after staff induction's done, or maybe I'll just put a picture of myself pretending to be in staff induction. I might go for a little walk and oh. then, uh, yeah, do something for my birthday on Saturday. I think. Lovely, uh, lovely. Like go for a meal or something like that. You know, at my age, there's not many options. Well, it's a big one next year. <laughs> It's the big one next year, episode 254. I'll be there. Genius. <laughs> right. <laughs> bye bye, Smurf Cats. Bye, Smurf Cats. Bye, Smurf Cats.